Welcome to the BJ Psych International Podcast. In this episode... Again, this is what makes the Hikikomori phenomenon so interesting to me, the fact that it's the exploration of these factors that have so many links between not just both the individual but kind of the wider society and how we as professionals, in that sense, are really well-placed to understand it. Dr. Marcus Tan joins us to discuss international experience of hikikomori, prolonged social withdrawal, and its relevance to psychiatric research. Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of the BJ Psych International Podcast. My name is Sachin Shah. I am a general adult trainee in London. And my name is Hamilton Morin. I'm an FY1 doctor at St. Thomas's Hospital in London. Today we're going to talk about an article in the BJ Psych International titled International Experience of Hikikomori, Prolonged Social Withdrawal, and its Relevance to Psychiatric Research. The article is authored by Marcus P.J. Tan, William Lee, and Takahiro A. Kato, and the lead author will be joining us to talk about the article. But let's just uh, lay down what hikikomori is. Uh, Hami, I think you have experience of this, right? Well, yes, Sachin. On my elective in Japan, I was fortunate enough at Keio University Hospital during my placement in neuropsychiatry to actually see some patients who, prior to their admission, were considered to be hikikomori. And I was able to sit in on a few clinics with these patients. What kind of presentation does someone with hikikomori have from your experience? Well, it really can be varied. But some of the patients who I saw were, say, young men in their 20s who initially stopped coming into work or stopped coming into university and gradually began to withdraw from friend groups, from society as a whole, really, and derived, I guess, stimulation from other activities. And I suppose in moderation, that necessarily wouldn't be a problem. But these people had been at home for periods in excess of three to four months, which was quite concerning to their families, um, quite concerning to people around them but in some cases not as concerning to the patients themselves and what was the general demographic of the patients who are coming in with hikikomori so i can only speak about the patients that i saw but of the patients i saw they were mostly younger men in their 20s or early 30s that i saw what kind of treatments were being given at the clinic that you went to so I got to see employment of CBT-based methods, cognitive behavioral therapeutic methods of therapy. But from what I understand, it was kind of a case-by-case basis what each person would be seeing the benefit from most. But I understand there was also, not, not in the consultations I saw, but there was also use of psychodynamic models of therapy as well. I believe in cases where they believe there was comorbid depression, patients were also given antidepressants as well. So you did see cases where it wasn't just purely hikikomori, but there were other psychiatric conditions as well? Yes, yes. Interesting. I think uh, the paper actually gets into the possibility of that. So now to speak about the paper, 
we have the lead author, Dr. Marcus Tan, a specialty trainee in child and adolescent psychiatry at South London and Maudsley NHS Trust. Thank you very much for coming on to the podcast today, Marcus. Thank you very much for having me. So, Marcus, if you wouldn't mind, could you tell us a bit about yourself, the work you're doing, and why you've taken an interest in hikikomori? I'm a higher trainee in child psychiatry at the Mortsley, like you guys have said. And how did I get interested in hikikomori? I mean, I literally, like most other people, I understand, I saw it online, basically. This term of people who had socially withdrawn from society for very long periods of time and kind of lived quite graphic, remarkable lifestyles. And I got motivated to read about it a little bit more. And I think one of the narratives, actually, which surrounds Hikikomori is kind of how it's caused by very many different things. So culture is one of the things that has been suggested, actually, this idea that there might be something unique in Japanese culture. And we can talk again about whether or not that's true. But this idea on whether or not Japanese culture specifically has caused Hikikomori. And also other things about whether or not this person's psychological makeup has caused it and other certain biological correlates have caused it as well. So I think what got me interested actually is both the fact that it's this kind of disorder that demands your attention of these people who have literally shut themselves away and chosen not to interact with society for long periods of time. It just makes you concerned on what's happening. And also the fact that the etiology of it is just so complicated and so interesting. And I think especially the fact that it relates to cultural psychiatry and how that may be similar or different to what we experience as well. I think all those are very fascinating for me. Mm. So I think first off, for our listeners, the most important thing to clarify is what exactly does the term hikikomori mean? So, hikikomori is a Japanese word, and the literal meaning of it in Japanese means basically to pull away, to withdraw. Uh. In Japanese, it consists of two verbs, hiku, which means literally to pull, as in to push or to pull, physically to pull, and komoru, which basically means to shut oneself in, to seclude away. So, taken together, it is used to refer to people to have essentially shut themselves away from society. The term was first introduced by a Japanese psychiatrist who goes by the name of Tamaki Saito, who published a book entitled Hikikomori, in which he described cases of almost exclusively young men, in which they had literally shut themselves away in their rooms and not engage with society for a very long period of time. So basically, at its core, it refers to this idea of social withdrawal, people choosing not to engage with society. Of course, nowadays, definitions have tried to clarify a bit more on what that means, but at its core, that is what the essence of the word entails. I see. And is this a particularly big issue in Japan? Yes, actually. Well, I mean, it depends on what you mean by big, and it depends who's asking. Basically, what happened after Saito-sensei, Dr. Saito, published his book, actually, is that it got a lot of attention. A lot of people started responding to the book. In Japan, for example, I think it struck really a chord with people, with a lot of people, both professionals and the public, because they felt he gave voice and described an issue, actually, that was felt 
to be quite prevalent. The government also actually started sitting up and taking notice, actually. The Japanese government did. Obviously, I guess in part because it was felt to be a very prevalent issue. But I think also because there was a concern of what else is going on here. What else does this condition underlie? And I think there was also the concern about the economic impact as well, about the potential of these people who are literally withdrawn from society, economically inactive. And there was actually quite a large concern that this is a very large proportion of people. And so therefore, there were concerns from that front. Is there something that needs to be done to engage these people? I see. And looking at the epidemiology of hikikomori, yes. I mean, when I was on elective, most of the individuals I saw were young men. But Mm -hmm. what is the actual epidemiology of hikikomori? In regards to the epidemiology of hikikomori, it depends on who you ask and how the term hikikomori is being defined. This figure of 1% prevalence of hikikomori has been used quite a lot. And this comes from a survey that I think I mentioned in my paper by a doctor called Koyama Asuka, which was quite methodologically sound, actually, to be fair. It got a fairly representative sample of people in Japan and tried their best to kind of survey the whole of Japan. But the way they assessed whether or not people had socially withdrawn was actually by self-report. They certainly did try to define in the sense that people had been withdrawn from society for six months or longer, which is indeed part of the definition that Dr. Kato actually produced. But they did it by self-report, either of the respondents themselves or the people that they asked. So they basically asked people, do you know anyone who had withdrawn from society for six months or longer? There wasn't necessarily any way of verifying this by independent criteria, actually. So that's one of the issues, actually. But yes, certainly by asking people, and in that sense, second and third person report, there was this suggested prevalence of 1%. I see. And so if I were to open a theoretical copy of the ICD-10, would I be able to find a set diagnostic criteria for hikikomori? No, you would not. You wouldn't find it in the newer ICD-11, actually. I mean, well, at least the first version of it that has been published. No, you wouldn't. It hasn't entered the diagnostic manuals, nor has it entered the diagnostic manuals of DSM-4 or 5. So, in which case, which diagnostic criteria are clinicians in Japan using for this? None, I think is the short answer. I mean, of course, Dr. Kato has put forth the diagnostic criteria that I think actually is very useful and is probably a good way of standardizing it. But before all this happened, people didn't necessarily use any kind of set standardized diagnostic criteria. I think they just took the term for what they felt it means, just describing at its core a person who has shut off, disengaged from society and not come out from their room for long periods of time and rolled with it. They didn't necessarily define things like the duration of withdrawal. They didn't define things like, for example, what does it mean to be cut off from society? And also, they didn't define things like, do they withdraw into their home? Or are online relationships connected to it as well? That's one of the other things. So a lot of the things that kind of literature doesn't necessarily explore. I see. Mm -hmm. And just for the sake of clarification, 
what is the criteria that Kato Sensei et al. have put forward for hikikomori? They define it as pathological social withdrawal or social isolation, whose essential feature is physical isolation in their home. There's three criteria. First is the social isolation. Second, the fact that this isolation lasts for at least six months. And third, is that this isolation causes significant functional impairment associated with it. There are a few more specifiers, like for example, they talk about things like you might be classified on a spectrum of severity, like say for example, if you leave your home, what they define occasionally being two to three days a week, that might be classified as mild hikikomori, or moderate hikikomori are people who rarely leave their home defined as one day a week or less. So mild and moderate severity based on how often they leave their home. There are a lot of other qualifiers that they have included as well. Things, for example, like whether or not there's comorbidity or whether or not there's loneliness. I see. Mm -hmm. And I suppose that's the closest thing we have to a consensus on any real criteria for hikikomori. Yeah. So Marcus, you said that the severity levels with hikikomori, according to Kato et al.'s criteria... Are there people who never leave their homes at all? From what I understand, there have been people like that, actually. And that's what I guess they would define in their definition as severe hikikomori. What is their life like of someone who's not leaving home? How are they getting by? I think usually what happens is that they basically live in a home where there is someone who takes care of them. Sometimes this might be their caregiver, quite typically their parents, and yeah, they are the people who kind of essentially take care of their basic needs and things like that. And in terms of things like toileting, there's obviously some people live in ensuite bathrooms. So that's kind of how they take care of that. And in terms of food, well, if people leave their food sometimes at their door without necessarily going in, that's one way to do it as well. And that's describing a situation, I suppose, where they're not even leaving their rooms. Is that typical? I think it's a bit premature to say whether not all hikikomori are like that, actually. I don't think the research yet has been done. But there are such cases who don't leave their rooms at all? There are such cases, yes, there are. Ah. I see. What exactly do we know about comorbid conditions in hikikomori? I think, based on what the evidence suggests to me, Comorbid conditions do tend to occur quite a lot in hikikomori. Certainly in most of the studies that have been done, when they try to screen for comorbid conditions, most of them find very high rates of comorbidity. Like essentially two of the studies that I discussed in the paper have basically said that kind of the rates of what they call hikikomori without any other comorbid psychiatric conditions is less than 1% essentially. So yes, it does mostly co-occur with other more standard psychiatric diagnoses. Exactly what those are vary quite a lot. And, and there has been some concerted effort to kind of do comorbidity studies. But I think essentially in regards to what kind of things co-occur with the hikikomori, it is quite a large spectrum of disorders and can include anything like depression, anxiety, or other stress-related disorders. Certain physical health things have been suggested in case reports as well, but there are quite a lot of other things that have been found to co-occur with it. Marcus, you've mentioned that often quite a high number of individuals who are hikikomori have these comorbidities and that these comorbidities vary 
from study to study. First of all, is there a reason why there may be discrepancy in comorbidities that are being seen between studies? I think one of the reasons is basically because they might not have assessed for the full range of psychiatric disorders. Like, for example, the most cited one by Dr. Koyama actually didn't assess for neurodevelopmental disorders or psychosis. I guess one of the reasons for that was because I think at that time the article was published, the Japanese guidelines actually suggested that Hikikomori might have some association with psychosis. So I think the fact that that was included was a nod towards that, actually. But similar issues also happen when you look at the rest of the comorbidity studies. Like, for example, there is a study from Ukraine that basically looked at comorbidity but only considered comorbidity from one specific category, specifically the F40 to 48, according to the ICD-10, of so-called neurotic, stress-related, and somatoform disorders. I think those are the two main studies in comorbidity, but that have been other studies, like there is one study by a Spanish team, I think looking at essentially crisis and home treatment team cases, their version of it anyways, by Dr. Malagon Amor. And when they did a study, they actually found quite a lot lower prevalences of hikikomori that had comorbidity. So basically what it looks like is the trend is when there are studies that look at the full range of psychiatric disorders, they find that actually comorbidity with hikikomori and other psychiatric disorders is a lot higher than when they look only at a more narrow range of disorders. I see. And I think this begs the question, and I'm sure you've been asked this before or considered this before, but could it be the case that rather than hikikomori being a, a primary entity or primary diagnosis, could it instead be the presentation of a variety of already established psychiatric conditions? I think that's where the research is actually suggesting, actually, especially from the figures that are coming out from these studies. Like, for example, the Spanish study following 190 people looking at the full range of diagnosis and only finding one person without associated psychopathology. So, yes, I do think so. That's where the research is going, certainly. If these studies of comorbidity are anything to go by. And yeah, I guess, well, not that it's not necessarily surprising, but I think it's not inconceivable to think how most disorders, like, you, I think you can take your pick from most ICD or DSM disorders, and I think you can relate it to how it can cause prolonged social withdrawal. I mean, depression, for example, it is mentioned associated symptoms of depression such as anergia, anhedonia, and kind of disinterest in daily activities, for example, can coexist, for example, with the picture of someone who, because of these depressions and because of these symptoms, chooses not to leave their home. Things with psychosis and schizophrenia, for example, if someone has paranoid delusions that the world is an unsafe place for whatever reason, that can also cause people to withdraw. And you can make, I think, similar arguments for other diagnoses with things like PTSD or anxiety, social anxiety, for example, or autism, or most other things. I think that can be one way in which they can overlap. And I suppose with schizophrenia, you also have negative symptoms, which yes, yeah. can cause apathy and a similar feature of someone who stops engaging with regular activities. Yes, that's right. Exactly. 
And so how exactly should further research into the connection between hihikomori and other conditions best be conducted? I think one thing that's very important is that people do need to stick to a fairly strict definition of what hikikomori means. I think Kato's definition, like I said, is quite useful in that respect. Although I think one other thing needs to be said about how exactly information is obtained. Like, for example, I think one thing useful is getting information from more than one person. So getting collateral histories from other family members, other professionals, other agencies, for example, like school, for example, might give a good picture of their pre-morbid personality. The parents would be able to give a good picture of what their level of functioning is like at home. And again, discuss the idea of what potential symptoms they do and don't have as well. And obviously interviewing the person as well to kind of find out what exactly is their complaint, as it were, and basically doing a good thorough psychiatric history. I think that's one of the first steps to doing it. And obviously with using things like standardized tools as well might potentially help this as well so that ensuring the full range of diagnoses are explored. Mm. And then matching that again to kind of establish diagnostic criteria as well. I mean, Marcus, you mentioned about using standardized hikikomori criteria and the ones you mentioned in the paper from Kato et al. They don't exclude cases who have comorbid conditions, or to put it another way, having a comorbid condition is not an exclusionary criterion. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yes, that's right. Do you think that's useful or how does that factor? I think basically the way this happened is that initially people thought hikikomori was a culture-bound syndrome. And they thought it was going to be an entirely new diagnosis. But then what happened after that actually is that a lot of cases were started being reported in other cultures other than Japan. So I think now that that has happened, basically the research has moved on to saying this is an entirely new diagnosis to realizing actually it's not actually a new diagnosis, but it's actually something that other psychiatric disorders might potentially present with. So I think that's why that specifier has been included about comorbidity, so that we can use it to clarify what exactly is this all about and what other psychiatric disorders is causing this kind of behavior. Does that make sense? It's no longer something new, as it were, but the question has become more, is this a disorder of social functioning, as it were, that other diagnoses are beginning to present with? that, That makes sense. It's interesting how you mentioned at first it was believed that hikikomori may be a culture-bound syndrome, but now further afield cases are being reported. I know you mentioned research being performed in Ukraine and Spain. Where else have similar cases been noted? All over the world, really. Yeah, Ukraine, like I said, Spain. Oman is another one that has reported the case report. There's been quite a few reports from Italy as well. America, there is a case report as well. And as well as Korea, Hong Kong as well, there have been studies on it. And I think there's also been what 
was essentially an international case vignette survey that was sent to psychiatry professionals, actually, in certain countries. And clinicians were asked the question, do you think such a case exists and in any kind of degree of prevalence? Is it prevalent in your countries? And I believe it was India as well that said yes to that question. And comparing Japan with all these other countries, do you think, first of all, is hikikomori necessarily uh, a more common thing in Japan? And if so, is there anything in particular about Japanese culture which would make the hikikomori presentation uh, predominate so much? Again, unfortunately, I don't think the studies have been done, actually. I mean, there have been some prevalent studies done, but again, I don't think anything has actually approached the level of methodology that I was solid, vigorous epidemiological methodology that I would expect in a prevalence study that the Koyama study has employed, actually. Everything else has just employed fairly, if you will, quite study methods that have only looked at certain specific populations. Like, for example, there was one attempt at a prevalence study, and I believe it was Hong Kong, where they sent hikikomori questionnaires out to people online and calculated the responses based on that. But again, obviously, that's not rigorous epidemiological sample the whole population and get a figure of prevalence that accurately reflects out of a general full population how many people have it. I don't think that kind of methodology is able to answer that question. Right. So given the paucity of evidence, were you to, say, speculate as to why we saw the literature first in Japan on this, assuming that that is the case? But is there anything in particular about Japanese culture specifically that would make hikikomori much more of an entity in Japan as opposed to other countries? Just just purely, um, I guess, speculation and and speaking about um, culture. So the question is what in the Japanese culture might make hikikomori more prevalent? Yes. People have been... Like I said, again, because people thought of it as a culture-bound syndrome, there have certainly been suggestions towards this. I think one of the things that the finger was pointed towards is things, for example, like how people in Japan form social groups and relate to each other. A lot of people say things like the collectivistic mentality of Japan. People have certainly suggested there are things in Japanese culture that has made it more prevalent. I think one of the things that have been spoken about, for example, is this thing called Amaya. Yeah, what is Amaya? So Amaya, again, is a Japanese word, which was used first, I believe it was in the 1970s, I mean, it might be a bit earlier than that, by a Japanese psychiatrist called Takeo Doi, which there isn't a direct translation in English, actually. But this is one of the things in which people thought it was related to the hikikomori and one of the examples that people thought was unique to Japanese culture that made it more prevalent. So Amai, basically, the best way I can describe it is with an example. Say, for example, someone asks you to do something for them. When that person requests a favor of you, 
the theory goes is that you will feel closer to that person because this person is trying to depend on you. Yeah? Yeah. Mm. Amai is the idea of this feeling and the fostering of this feeling from the perspective of the person who is asking the favor. Doi basically says that Japanese culture places more emphasis on these kinds of relationships and the fact that society is built on this dependence. The fact that people have fostered these ideas of dependence and portraying themselves as, in that sense, essentially more vulnerable. And so would it be the case that Amaya is something that is exclusively Japanese or perhaps something we even see over here? I do think it is not exclusive to the Japanese culture. And I think that's exactly kind of what I was trying to get at by that kind of example. And certainly there have been experimental studies that have been done, actually, in which they have tried to simulate that kind of situation under experimental conditions, essentially kind of comparing people's perceptions of someone who asked them a favor and other people who didn't. And they've realized that there is also this feeling of going closer to the person who asked them a favor off. And this was in an American sample as well. I think one other thing that's also interesting is the fact that there is no kind of, in that sense, direct translation of the term in English. I mean, obviously, the idea of like feeling kind of dependent upon, calls upon ideas of things like feeling spoiled and feeling pampered. And of course, there is this term in English of what's called a spoiled brat. (laughs) But as much as Amaya does refer to kind of that feeling of being spoiled, I think it also occurs without the, the negative feelings, the negative connotations that the term brat implies. And so the connotation of it is this idea that people actually will feel more favorable to these people because of being depended on. And therefore, it fosters this idea that you can depend on me and therefore encourages this person to feel more pampered and make an increasing amount of demands. How this relates to hikikomori is that they've applied it in the context of the caregiver relationship with the person fostering the amai being the person who is obviously kind of being shut in in their home, whereas the person who is encouraging this kind of behavior is the person who is caregiving. And your paper mentions that there is some similarity between amai and other parenting styles in East Asian countries? Yeah. Yes, exactly. And I think Again, because this is an emotion that's not necessarily unique to Japan in that sense, I think, yes, there is. And are there any other cultural factors that you think may explain why hikikomori is or has more of a presence as an idea in Japan as opposed to other countries? To be honest, I don't think so, actually. I have to say, I mean... There have been other factors that people have suggested are Japanese-specific that cause the condition to be more prevalent. While I agree that is the case, I don't necessarily think those kinds of factors are specific to Japan. Like, for example, one of the good examples is this idea of bullying. There is this term called ijime, which has been translated to mean bullying also. Bullying in all these kinds of various contexts, whether in school or in the workplace. So is that like a mijiwaru? Yes, exactly, exactly. Ijiwaru. Like, in casual conversation, that can mean a lighter form of teasing as well. But obviously, people have suggested that there has been some kind of traumatic precipitant, as it were, in their earlier life, 
like that's one of the things that's caused them to become hikikomori is that to suggest that there's a bullying culture which might underlie hikikomori is there a bullying culture that underlies hikikomori certainly i think there has been some evidence to suggest that people who are more bullied are more likely to become hikikomori is japan more susceptible to bullying other people than other countries i'm not convinced the answer is necessarily yes but so when we talk about uh, ijime what would be an example of ijime in japan so in hikikomori it's usually related to people being bullied in school mm. so again this idea of being bullied in earlier life as a precipitate as it mm. were. and people have suggested that bullying in japan that their experiences can be very harsh and very severe so basically people have made the argument is not the same as bullying in other schools for example with the entire and deliberate social exclusion by literally everyone else such that this person who has been bullied the target feels like such an outsider but is that necessarily specific to japan i'm not convinced it is actually and mm. certainly i think in my own clinical experience i have heard cases and i have dealt with cases of people who have been similarly in that sense experienced similar levels of traumatic experience sometimes accompanied by even more other kinds of experiences as well such as like physical abuse or other things like that hmm. that have also happened as well there's one of the cultural factor you mentioned haji i don't know if you wanted to expand on that one so haji is meant as shame is translated as shame and people have said it's related to this idea that in Japan people are very concerned with how they are outwardly presenting to other people and saying things for example it may potentially be related because people feel very shamed to present themselves to society therefore the only option is to necessarily withdraw into their own home but i think shame as a concept has occurred in many other cultures as well and people do necessarily feel similar kinds of levels of shame i think potentially what they might feel shamed about might vary a little bit based on cultures but i think shame is a human emotion that i think most other cultures do experience i think what's not so clear with all those things is whether or not there are certain things in kind of japanese culture that makes these quite universal experiences mean something different to them and i think it's not necessarily a question we'll answer very quickly because i think a lot of these things you need to go into kind of their own personal stories to understand exactly what it means for this shame to occur and obviously again this is going into kind of the idea of how each single person their own human experience is and then again taking their own human experiences and generalizing it to the certain culture and making this argument that it's different to cultures from the rest of the world i think that might be something potentially where people might have a little bit of trouble i think it goes into this idea of whether or not the etic versus the emic explanations of mental illness whether or not these factors are dependent on single person factors and whether or not each person's experience is unique or kind of more global factors to say whether or not because these people experience in kind of cultural groups and kind of therefore the experience of the whole person the whole society you can make generally at least broad sweeping statements on that
And mm. again, because people's experiences are so unique, I think it'll be quite difficult to draw conclusions based on them. But I think in terms of what further research is needed to kind of clarify this, I think that's where it will go. You know, I personally don't have much experience of hikikomori in clinical practice. So I think sometimes it helps to listen to a case report about it. And this is from an article titled The Phenomenon of Hikikomori in brackets, social withdrawal, and the socio-cultural situation in Japan today. And it's by M. Sua and K. Suzuki at the Faculty of Health and Medical Sciences at Aichi Shukutoku University. And the case report reads, The patient's mother first came to our office and explained that her son had refused to work for two years after graduating from university, even though he had a good academic record and was always kind and gentle in his dealings with others. After six months of counselling the mother, the patient himself came to our office. He was 25 years of age. He complained that he would like to have a job and lead an ordinary life, but was unable to do so. In discussing his past, we discovered that he was good academically and even leader of the student representative committee in elementary school. In high school, he joined the volleyball club, but soon quit in anger because he felt that the team selection procedures were unfair. He subsequently lost motivation to attend school and dropped out. After three years, he entered university via the special university entrance qualification system. He was able to adjust to university life. After graduating from university, he obtained a regular company job. He attended the company training course where he met many fellow employees for the first time. However, he soon became exhausted from the effort to maintain good relationships with them. Additionally, he was disappointed by his perceived inability to relate well with others and felt that he would not be able to manage his job. He feared entering adult society. As a consequence, he was unable to report for work on the first day and continued to remain at home. He felt ashamed of himself for giving up before really trying. For about six months, he could not leave his room and reversed his day-night schedule. After that, he was able to leave the house, but only in the evening, and he was anxious about meeting acquaintances. Although he feared others would not notice that he had not worked for several years, he believed that he could handle regular communication, and had no anxiety about having conversations with people unconnected to his work or life. After seven years of counselling, he still stays at home and is unable to take on a job, complaining that he has no confidence in his ability to cope with society. Marcus, does that ring true for a case of Hikikomori? Yes, that does sound like a very typical case of Hikikomori, actually, and there are a lot of aspects in that case study that do allude to all the other antecedents and the potential precipitating factors towards that led to the social isolation that the literature has talked about. For example, this idea that he feared that he would not be able to live up to the expectations of society and this trajectory of the fact that when he was a younger person, he would academically excel, actually. So bringing into that, that idea of haji, the idea of shame, that he would be afraid if he failed, he would shame his parents. And things like the idea of a job market 
this idea that when he gets out, he needs to succeed. So again, this idea of failure as well. Mm. I think it does touch on a lot of that. Was there bullying in it? Do remind me. I was just going to say there was a mention of the volleyball team selection process he felt was unfair. Mm. That's obviously it's not explicit mm. bullying, but it can be interpreted as a, a slight, can't it? Yes. You can't say for sure without knowing further details, but if as a clinician I was given that case, that is certainly one of the things, I guess, I would explore a lot more. I mean, not necessarily bringing the social withdrawal into it, but getting his perspective of what exactly happened there and kind of, I think, essentially being really sensitive to the idea of this person and being, again, because taking into account, like I said, this person is so scared of society rejecting him, just being really open and non-judgmental. Bringing into, again, this idea of shame, there might well be this idea that if he kind of was outrightly kind of said something like, oh, the volleyball team bullied me, this might get his seniors into trouble. And again, bringing in the idea that there's this hierarchical relationship in Japan and he might not feel qualified in that sense to talk about this. I essentially kind of being sensitive to that, but equally also, I think, bearing in mind that these factors aren't necessarily unique to the Japanese culture. People would be bullied in school, for example. People do get worried that they're not going to do well and therefore aren't going to go to uni. These worries that even though I get a job, because of the fact that the labor market is shrinking, is not just a Japan-specific phenomenon. That this idea that if you get into a white-collar job and being concerned that am I actually going to feel fulfilled from this, or even if I succeed in that, is this kind of what my life's supposed to be? These are all very basic, in that sense, existential questions, as it were, that I think everyone struggles with. And I think as clinicians, as it were, I think, Again, this is what makes the hikikomori phenomenon so interesting to me, the fact that it's the exploration of these factors that have so many links between not just both the individual but kind of the wider society and how we as professionals, in that sense, are really well-placed to understand it, potentially. I think that's what makes hikikomori, the study of it, very interesting to me. In your article, you also mentioned that further research in this area could potentially also investigate possible overlaps with related ideas such as loneliness and social isolation. What exactly are the distinctions between these states? Okay, so some definitions, I guess, would be helpful. So I think loneliness refers to a subjective experience of someone based on the perceived lack of social contact. I think the key word I'd highlight in that definition is the subjectiveness of it. So obviously people can feel lonely, even though objectively they're meeting a lot of people because they feel that experience of meeting people is inadequate to them for whatever reason. And that contrasts with the objective concept of social isolation which again looks at more objective measures such as like, for example, how many people do you see in a week, for example? How many friends do you have? How many people do you have contact with? So yeah, so there is this distinction between the subjective and the objective with loneliness and social isolation. I think Hikikomori, at its current form, 
because in the current diagnostic criteria, they haven't mentioned subjective experiences of the withdrawal outside of the idea that it causes distress, which again is defined in this sense by a, a kind of observer, as in an observer must look at this situation and decide it is causing distress. I think it's because of that element of it. I think hikikomori becomes more of a subset of social isolation. And it refers specifically to the subset of socially isolated people who fit that specific definition of hikikomori as in they have been socially isolated and they have been socially isolated for at least six months. I see. That, uh, I guess that makes sense. And not everyone who is hikikomori would necessarily feel lonely. Yes, and I think that is, I guess in that sense, an important distinction to make. I mean, on one hand, it is a disorder that is supposed to have significant functional impairment. But what exactly that significant functional impairment, I don't think it's necessarily being defined. I think on the one hand, you can argue that certainly if you're withdrawn for very long periods of time and you relax social contacts, in itself, it sounds like a very distressing experience. But I think equally also, if someone, as it were, doesn't have any direct contact with people, but say, for example, does have a lot of indirect contact with people online, that could be one way in which that this person would necessarily fit the definition of hikikomori. So say, for example, and there have been several anecdotal reports of this, no scientific articles, but certainly a lot of articles that have been published in newspapers and things like that that have described hikikomori that live lifestyles online. Like, for example, there has been a publication in English by this newspaper called Mainichi. It's a Japanese publication, but the article's in English that talks about how hikikomori, for example, have been able to live lifestyles online. Like, for example, they talk about things like there's a hikikomori DJ that they mentioned called Cleone that is able to continue his DJ business online and continues kind of his business entirely on the internet. So he, for all intents and purposes, would satisfy in that sense that definition of hikikomori. He might not necessarily satisfy the impairment definition, but in terms of everything else that he, he is satisfied, like the social isolation and the six-month definition, the, the article does suggest he would satisfy it. So in the terms of the question of are they more susceptible to loneliness, you would think so. And certainly at its core, I think that's kind of what made me interested in hikikomori in the first place. The, like, how is it possible that someone can live without social contact for a long period of time and not see people for such a long period of time and yet still be okay? It makes people just wonder how. Yeah, and certainly, it, I kind of, in the context of this pandemic, if that's anything to go by the lockdown measures, everyone kind of feeling quite distressed in terms of like this very sudden disruption on not being able to see people is anything to go by. It is something that can induce people into thinking kind of, I need to meet someone and make them feel lonely. But as to whether or not Hikikomori feel lonely because of that as a result, whether or not kind of internet only indirect communication as it were, is enough for them. That's, to be honest, I think that's an open question. And I think, if anything, that's one of the other areas that needs to be explored in hikikomori and probably just social isolation more generally. To what extent does indirect communication via the internet fulfill our need for social contacts? 
Because you mentioned in the article that even the consolidated criteria that Kato et al. have come up with do not address this issue of whether online relationships count as relationships. Let me just quote that online relationships are a possible avenue through which Hikikomori remain socially connected despite their physical isolation, highlighting the need for assessment and diagnostic tools for Hikikomori, which are updated and relevant. So I guess this is suggesting that even the most up-to-date conception of Hikikomori is not in line with how people live their lives necessarily. Yeah, exactly. I would agree that is one of the major areas in which the diagnostic criteria would need to be improved. And so, Marcus, do you believe that the international community should take more of an interest in hikikomori? Yes, I do think so, actually. If only, again, because of the fact that it is something that speaks so much to our idea of like social contact and how important it is for people. There have actually been studies on social isolation and loneliness, and they've shown that they're both actually associated with what they call all-cause mortality. And yeah, it's a meta-analysis actually by a researcher called Julian Holt Lundstad that basically says that these are things that can kill you faster to various kinds of causes. So it's therefore not just the fact that, oh, these people have been socially isolated and we need to kind of try and interfere with their lives, as it were. I think there's also the element of just need to know a little bit more. What is it in society that's causing them to act like this? If they're living their lives without distress, that's fine. But I don't think we can necessarily say that of everyone. I think more research does need to be done to see, do people like this exist? And if they do, is it a problem? And you touched upon earlier how the effects of social isolation over the past two months during this pandemic are something that are being felt really on a widespread level. Do you think there's anything we could learn from studying hikikomori that might be relevant to the wider population, given the fact that an incredible number of people have experienced subjective and, well, more outright objective social isolation during the past Mm -hmm. two months? I think the two conditions do necessarily need to be thought of fairly differently. Again, kind of like, if you want to go by the strict definition of hikikomori as social isolation of six months or more, then obviously this doesn't necessarily fit into that. But there are similarities in terms of how people deal with the pandemic and what social isolation means to these two different groups of people. One of the narratives in Hikikomori that talks about why people become Hikikomori, for example, that I thought would think is particularly interesting is this idea of Hikikomori as essentially what is a rejection of modern life, of modern society. So the theory is that these people, and this has been put forth by a sociologist, I believe his name was Andy Furlong, who talks about this idea of how hikikomori are essentially in what he called an identity moratorium. Identity moratorium is a psychological concept that comes from, I believe it's the early 1930s by a psychologist called James Marcia, that talks about this idea of the formation of identity 
in which basically the final stage is essentially a self-actualization and the fulfillment of an identity in which you are comfortable with. They conceptualize hikikomori as being a state of identity moratorium in which these people have chosen to kind of self-isolate themselves because there are still questions of is their identity correct for them and relates this to hikikomori by saying they have chosen to disengage from society because they've wanted to explore this more fully. And I think this touches on the idea that self-isolation can actually have positive features and draws again on this idea of kind of is hikikomori necessarily a disorder that medical professionals, as it were, need to get involved with. That I think it just draws upon the fact that this activity can be used quite positively. People have used it, for example, like they said, to kind of discover themselves, to kind of spend more time working on their own projects and essentially disengage from the pressures of society. Essentially give themselves a bit of me time, actually, which I think, in that sense, is quite useful like for all of us, as it were. And I think, if anything, in terms of like a message of how people can cope in social isolation, I think that's quite a good message to kind of use this opportunity of being disengaged, forced disengagement, albeit, from society to kind of think a little bit more about where might your energies be directed to other things like yourself, for example, and other pursuits. And just engage in a little bit of self-reflection. I think that's one of the ways in which it can help. Wow, that's really interesting. I have to ask Marcus, mm. are there any depictions of hikikomori in media, say, films, books, games, that you think might be useful or interesting for listeners to check out to gain a better understanding of the idea of hikikomori? Oh, that's a good question, actually. Um, I think the first thing I will say is that rolling on with this idea that it's not necessarily Japan-specific, if you're asking for someone who's socially withdrawn, there are examples from everywhere. A very popular example, for example, is Beauty and the Beast, which <laughs> I think Dr. Alan Teo, uh, one of the other hikikomori researchers, also mentioned in his paper. This is the story of a prince who basically, because of his perceived ugliness, chose to disengage completely from society. You have the example of Frozen, this idea of this, I think it was Elsa, wasn't it? Frozen fans can correct me. But Elsa, who was, again, because of this, her perceived difference with her magical powers, chose to call no deal and say, okay, this society is not for me. I'm going to run away and hold myself out in my own ice castle. Those are examples from Western cultures as well. Loads of stories of this narrative of people feeling excluded, isolated from society. In Japan, there have been several Japanese animations that have talked about it, not necessarily kind of spelt out, used the word hikikomori, but alluded to this idea of a person, this average what they call a salary man, essentially the, a white-collar worker who leads a dull, unfulfilling life and not choosing to disengage with society. There is a lot of that kind of narrative going around. And also talking about it, again, in terms of this idea of fulfillment, there is this genre of animation called the isekai genre, which essentially translates to the idea of these people escaping into a different fantastical world to find more fulfillment in that kind of world, that kind of narrative. I think more specific to the hikikomori, there's also this anime called Welcome to the NHK, 
Um, yes. And this one that actually does use the word hikikomori. So NHK, obviously, most people know it as the Japanese Broadcasting Corporation. Nihon Hoso Kyokai in Japanese, which, yeah, NHK is the English kind of abbreviation for it. But interestingly, in this anime, it abbreviates it to Nihon Hikikomori Kyokai, which <laughs> translates to Japanese Association of Hikikomori. And wow. yeah, part kind of looks at it from this Hikikomori person's perspective of kind of what's it feel like to be socially isolated. And again, kind of, he might not necessarily be locked in for six months. The anime does show him socializing a lot more, but it does talk about a lot of the anxieties and the pressures and the struggles with modern life as well. Those themes do come through. And also, again, I guess also interesting kind of mismatch between what's normally a very popular term, NHK, and misconstruing it with their own misattributions. There is also that kind of, I guess, a bit of a potentially kind of paranoid flavor to it almost, which kind of, again, speaks to this idea of how psychosis and psychotic experience, again, bearing in mind that not necessarily all the Hikikomori are psychotic, that is definitely untrue. But again, factoring into this idea that people have perceived the world as a potentially very threatening place and helping people understand it from this person's perspective. What is it like to be socially isolated for such long periods of time? I think these media do help do with that. Can I ask then, what is the cultural view of Hikikamori in Japan? And some things make me think of this, like, for example, the fact that someone with hikikomori themselves may not see themselves as having any problems, and that even in the case study, it's more the caregiver who may present at first or who may raise the issue. Also, the fact that it seems quite... Obviously, there's no single generation which will have it, but it seems more predominant in a certain generation. So who worries about it? And is there any element of society that maybe glorifies it? Ooh, a lot of questions there, actually. All very good questions. Well, so more broadly, just what is the cultural view of Hikikomori in Japan? I am doing a study on this, actually, looking at Twitter and document how do people use the word Hikikomori. And what is coming out is that it can mean a lot of different things. I think it's not necessarily used with the diagnostic rigor that we might expect. Certainly, everyone they call hikikomori doesn't necessarily fit the definition that Dr. Kato has proposed, but it does use it to allude to this idea of a person who is socially withdrawn. I think there has been a lot of negative use. Like, for example, it has been used like on Twitter in the sense of a hashtag. So, for example, I think that there was this news story of this person who Essentially, he, he was cruel to animals and performed a lot of deeds related to that. And people essentially started describing these things and putting hashtag Hikikomori. Which again speaks to the fact that A, it's not necessarily used appropriately in the set of socially withdrawn individuals. And even if this person was socially withdrawn, how do we know he was withdrawn for six months? But also, the, it speaks to the fact that it's used in a negative context. So immediately attributing, I think the connotation in that the use there is they're basically thinking this person is a recluse and socially cut off, therefore engages in such abhorrent behaviors. So that's the use of hikikimori in a very negative term. I think it has been used in a not necessarily 
positive term as well, but kind of used it in a kind of like more anecdotal way. Like people might say, for example, oh, it's raining outside. Hashtag hikikomori. The implication being, it's raining, therefore I can't go out. Therefore, I'm going to spend the day at home. And again, a day at home is nowhere near a six-month definition that's needed for a hikikomori diagnosis, but does allude to the idea that people kind of like have been socially isolated and socially cut off in that sense and using their social isolation themselves. So viewing it in perhaps a more positive light. The last thing I will say as well to your question is kind of you talked about this idea of a generational thing and certainly Twitter does only capture a specific generation. Actually, there have been a lot of hikikomori in Japan that have been discovered to be quite old. In Japan, there is this idea of what's called an 80-50 problem. Those numbers are referring to ages of people. So the theory going that when the parents get really old, so for example, these people who have been housing hikikomori, when they turn 80, and then their son's 50 years old. The picture then this portrays is a very lonely existence. These both people who are kind of trapped in their own kind of, as it were, life cycle with very little social recourse or social support to kind of help them out of it as well. I don't think necessarily this is a problem that's specific to Japan. I think there has been quite a lot of research in the UK, for example, by Age UK, that's a charity, to deal with older people that has looked at social isolation and loneliness in the older population in the UK as well, and found that actually it is quite prevalent. I'm not sure if it necessarily presents in the same way that they are literally locked away for six months or more, but I think this idea of an old person who is cut off from society and has very little social support, I don't think that's that inconceivable here, and I think that there is a significant subset of the community that might be experiencing this. Gosh, Marcus, you've really given us a fantastic crash course on hikikomori. Thank you. And both within the context of Japanese culture, but also globally. Uh, no, thank you very much for enlightening us all today. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Marcus. So that was Dr. Marcus Tan joining us to talk about hikikomori. So we thank him for joining us. We will join you next time for more discussion around the journal. I've been Sachin Shah. And I've been Hamilton Moran. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this BJ Psych International podcast. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at the BJ Psych. To listen to more podcasts from the BJ Psych Journal portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online.